I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. David H. Friedman. David H. Friedman is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a consulting editor for Johns Hopkins Medicine International and for McGill University's Faculty of Management. He is the author of five books, the most recent of which is Wrong. Much of his current work is related to obesity, nutrition, and health-related behavior change. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. David H. Friedman. Thank you. That, that was incredibly warm. That really was good. And uh, I'm, I'm really delighted uh, that so many people have, have turned up here to, uh, to hear some discussion and hopefully contribute to later on uh, something that I, I think, no kidding, is uh, possibly the, the biggest, most important issue facing mankind right now, which is uh, related to what can we do to change our behavior, the population at large, so that we can be healthier. And uh, I think we have the right people here to talk about it tonight, and I, I barely include myself. Um, I'm happy to say I'm probably, uh, I'm surely the, uh, the dumbest person up here and the least interesting uh, possibly in the whole place. Uh, let, me, let me introduce uh, tonight's panel. We have uh, Tracy Mann, um, and Dr. Mann has been a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota for six years. Uh, previously, she spent 10 years on the faculty at UCLA. Her research on the effectiveness of diets uh, has been cited extensively, including being mocked in The Onion. Now, there's a credential. <laughs> she has received grants from the National Institutes of Health, the USDA, and NASA, for whom she is researching comfort food eating in astronauts. How do we fatten people up when they're floating way above the Earth? Uh, secondly, we have Frederick Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman is the Fred and Pamela Wasserman Professor of Health Policy and Management in the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. He is a behavioral economist who has studied the effects of TV viewing on child health and development. He's particularly interested in the economic reasons why the typical American diet is of such poor quality. And finally, we have Jonathan E. Fielding. Dr. Fielding has led the public health activities for Los Angeles County as Director of Public Health and Health Officer for the past 14 years. He also serves as Commissioner of the First 5 LA Commission, which aims to improve the health and development of children five years of age and under. Dr. Fielding is a professor in the schools of medicine and public health at UCLA. So, as you can see, I do not lie, uh, these are the right people to discuss uh, this issue. And I'd like to start off uh, by throwing out a question to the panel, and, uh, and we'll just take it from there. We don't have a planned program tonight, we're just going to talk. So, I'm going to ask all of you to, as briefly as possible, if you only had 30 seconds or so, to really try to state what you think it's most important that we do to try to face this issue of how to change the public's behavior through what we, through the government, as academics, as experts, as journalists, what we can do to get the word out, what would you say the most important and effective thing we could do would be? Uh, I'll start with you, uh, if that's okay, Dr. Zimmerman. Yeah, well, thank you, Dave. First of all, thank you for your uh, moderation of this panel, and uh, thank you for your wonderful introduction. 
I think uh, probably one thing that we should do right away is to stop thinking just in terms of freedom uh, or expand our sense of what freedom means. Uh, a lot of times people say that uh, you know, the government is trying to interfere with our freedom and that uh, dietary behavior all comes down to personal responsibility. Uh, there have been a myriad of uh, studies that show that advertising really does have an influence on what people eat and how much they eat. I don't think there's any doubt of that. When you look at the studies and people are randomized into two groups and one group can be made to eat more than the other or to choose different foods than the other, then I think it really opens up our questions of what does freedom mean? What does power mean? What does personal responsibility mean? We've got to get those terms right, I think, if we're going to solve this problem. Sure, please. I, okay. Yes. Without addressing your many interesting things you just said, um, to answer your question, um, I feel like we have to realize that we're not going to solve this. Like, there's not going to be a single solution. And I think we have to realize that this is the kind of thing that we need to approach from multiple levels, really from every level that we can think of, from you know, the level of individuals, families, couples, you know, schools, communities, just sort of moving on up, you know, up to policies, laws. Um, you know, it's the kind of problem that I think we're going to get nowhere until we attack it from every single direction like that. That's, when we look at our theory. health, we have to realize that the major determinants of our behavior are in our social, our economic, and our physical environments. So we can't just look at personal responsibility. We can't just assume that things are going to get better if we do mass media. Um, but we can assume that if we can affect the social and economic and physical environments, we can make a huge difference. How do we affect them? Part of it is what we do through mass media and the social media and small media. Part of it is what we do through policy. And policy is not a dirty word. Um, and third is what kind of economic incentives do we provide? And it takes a combination of all three of those. And it also takes oftentimes a long time. Many of the changes we've seen have not occurred overnight. It's good to be impatient, but we shouldn't be too impatient. Uh, uh, Dr. Mann, the first thing you said was, putting aside all those issues you just raised, you said, of, of Dr. Zimmerman's comments. So elaborate on that. I mean, you, you heard what Dr. Zimmerman had to say it seemed uh, that perhaps may provoke uh, some thoughts on your part. Uh, right. What were you saying? You were talking about free will and responsibility. That's right. I, uh, because, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Dr. Fielding was sort of joking about policy and said right. that it's not a dirty word, and indeed it isn't. Uh, that's really where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. I think, you know, if we want to see a change in society, it's going to be th in, in part through policy. Now, policy can be defined yeah. by laws. It can also be defined by the policies of an organization. But that's the kind of thing that's going to have to change. And I think the biggest barrier to that changing is a drumbeat of rhetoric that people's dietary behaviors are their own business uh, and that no one else should be meddling. All right. And uh, so I have some issues with that uh, point of view. But um, perhaps yeah, you I, do, too. No, I, I was, I, I'm completely agreeing with you on that. I think... People are so worried about regulating things without realizing that so much is regulated and we don't care. You know, we don't think about it. You know, you have to essentially get a note from a doctor to get medication. And no one is like, oh, dear God, they're, you know. So I feel like, you know, a, a little healthy regulation is not, I'm not afraid of it. 
you know, seems like a good idea to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have to live with the fact, though, don't we? I mean, those of us who do feel, and I think many of us feel this way, that, sure, a certain amount of smart regulation on the part of the government, if we're mm -hmm. banning mm -hmm. giant drinks, if we're trying right. to yeah. keep the giant food companies from doing certain things that almost all of us can agree are just terrible for American health, and yet, when these things are attempted, there's tremendous pushback. Don't we have to take that pushback into account? I mean, does that mean these things simply won't work, or do we have to keep trying even though there's pushback from the public? Well, we need a lot of experiments, and the experiments can be local, they can be national, or they, they can be international. They could be at a statewide um, look at what at California's leadership in tobacco control started with Prop 98 and the clean indoor air, protecting workers in, uh, in the hospitality industry, um, the issue of secondhand smoke, you're affecting other people. California was a leader, and we still are. We have the second lowest rate of smoking among adults of any state, second only to Utah. So, uh, <laughs> and we, we've used that money for mass media, for education in the school, so as was suggested by my other panelists, it takes a lot of things. It takes more than a village. It takes sometimes a nation. Uh, and policy uh, uh, also, we've been ex quite ex successful with policy um, getting menu labeling. We started here in California. Now it's going to be national. There's going to be regulations out um, in April. Um, you know, things need to start someplace. You need to learn it. We put the ABC grading system in place for restaurants and we compared what happened to uh, hospitalization for foodborne illness in Los Angeles compared to the surrounding counties. And compared to that trend, we were 13% lower. So we reduced it by 13%. Well, it was an experiment. Not everybody thought it was a great idea. But now it's very, very highly accepted. Seat belts. Um, we had all these campaigns. I remember these campaigns, these long PSAs about why everybody needed to wear a seat belt. Didn't work. Only regulation, after we tried that for 20 years, finally people agreed we need regulation. And then there was two kinds of regulation. One was secondary regulation. You couldn't be stopped because you weren't wearing a safety belt. Only if you were stopped for some other infraction could they, could they uh, do something about that. And then we have primary regulation. Primary regulation says you can stop anybody if they're not wearing a seatbelt. And by the way, we should do the same thing for texting. Um, but, well, uh, but, uh, yeah. Well, texting, by the way, you, when you're texting in a car, it's the, same, it's the same as if your blood alcohol is at least 0.08, which would put you, you know, behind bars. So, I mean, that's a real opportunity. But, but anyway, when you got primary enforcement, we got very high rates of, of, of conformity. So, and nobody argues about it now. So part of it is we have to think about longer term. We can't think of things just in one step. Oftentimes it takes a number of steps. Public health works by successive redefinition of the unacceptable. So, so there's some there's some <laughs> think about that. So, <laughs> so there's there's some agreement here. We have to do many things. It's going to take time. Uh, let's run these experiments. Meanwhile, of course, um, people die. Yeah, I, mean, I think most of us, probably most of the people in this room, do agree. Not everybody in society agrees, but. Obesity, for example, uh, is taking lives. People die earlier than they should, and it's uh, importantly, not only are they dying earlier, it's reducing the quality of their last years of life. Sometimes uh, it hits people very young, reduces their product productivity. There are tremendous costs 
So what many of us would really like to hear are some big hits. I mean, what, what are, are there some sweet spots? Can we get some fast results? Do we really have to wait? It took almost 60 years to cut the smoking rate in half in this country. Can we afford to wait that long to cut the obesity rate in half in this country? Is that acceptable, a 60-year time frame? Or should we be working really hard to try to do something bigger faster? I don't think we should worry about the obesity rate per se. I think if we want to, I would like to redefine the problem to promoting health regardless of obesity because we're not going to reduce the obesity rate in any easy way because people aren't going to be able to lose weight and keep it off. But we can still make people healthier without, I mean, that thing just came out today. Was that just today? The Mediterranean diet yeah. reduced your risk of heart disease and heart disease mortality by 30%, but it didn't cause people to lose weight. So we can improve people's health without changing the obesity rate. But we are making progress, and, and it's going to be slow. The first thing is to turn around the obesity rate. It's been increasing yeah, in trend, Los Angeles. Yeah, it was increased by about 50% over a period of 10 years. So first thing is to stop the increase. And I think we've made some progress in that, some more recent data among third and fourth, uh, third and three and four-year-olds and among uh, high school students and junior high school students, uh, middle school students suggest that, in fact, we're starting to turn the corner. Um, in our own county, but it's just the beginning and it took a whole bunch of things and it's just the beginning mm -hmm. So but that's the first step and then we're not going to do this overnight So we have to think of what's a better diet given anybody's weight We have to think and then we have some other things that can work. Maybe menu labeling works. Maybe it doesn't We need to change the incentives. What about cross subsidies? We've worked with the schools mm -hmm. to change the food in the schools. That's going to make a difference sugar sweetened beverage consumption is going down the percentage of calories eaten from fast food restaurants has gone from, I think, 13 to 11.5%. So all of these, you know, are, are happening. And we need to have those that are the mass marketers also come along and occasionally even lead. <laughs> I, I, uh, I drove into East L.A. today. I went around to a number of neighborhoods finding food places. So I went to bodegas, cantinas, taquerias, supermarkets, fast food restaurants. And uh, the, I found, in general, absolutely what I would think of as the worst food, just big smorgasbords of really fatty meats, a lot of uh, fried pork shoulders. Not, not to pick on cultural, to all cultures <laughs> glorify various unhealthy foods. Uh, and uh, I, I found the healthiest meal at Carl's Jr., where they had a, a grilled cod sandwich. Uh, that was really actually, I thought, quite good. And you uh, think it was cod. Uh, and, and the question is, was it really cod? Yes, well, <laughs> the, <clears throat> I, I am careful about that, and I did send out a DNA sample, and I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that. That's the only way to find out for right, sure. Right. But I thought it was delicious. I eat at Carl's Jr. I'm obviously a gourmand. So, uh, <laughs> you know, what this said to me, I mean, we hear a lot about the fast food industry causing this problem. What I saw is really it's the local stores catering to the local culture that had, I thought, the least healthy stuff. I'm not trying to defend the fast food industry here. I'm saying, I don't know, can the fast food industry lead in this or do we have to make some changes in culture and at the level of social networks? Uh, to get people doing this? Culture, culture works both ways. If you look at, at L.A., we find that those who have been here longest have the worst health when they, when they immigrate to Los Angeles County. So they bring 
customs and beliefs and food preparation that is healthier when they come than 15 or 20 years later. Wow. <laughs> well, they haven't done enough uh, reading of Jonathan Gold. <laughs> right. <laughs> the the longtime residents uh, right. could stand to benefit from that, I think. You know, I think back to this issue of uh, is this something that we, can, that we should tackle right away? Uh, absolutely, we should. Um, but I don't think we're going to see immediate results. As Dr. Mann says, obesity takes a long time to turn around. Uh, however, uh, you know, if you look at the health effects of obesity, but controlling for diet and physical activity, it isn't that big of a deal. The real action is with diet, the quality of the diet, the amount of physical activity. And those are things that we can have an influence on, not overnight, but relatively rapidly. And I think those are some of the places to begin. The next time we have this panel, we're all going to be on treadmills, you realize. Right. <laughs> we're standing. We could do an instant recess break. An instant <laughs> recess, exactly. I mean, there's more low-hanging fruit <clears throat> left in sort of promoting exercise than there is in, uh, you know, reducing unhealthy eating. There's very little has really been ha been tried yet. So I, and that's where there's a lot of potential. Well, there's a lot going on actually trying to increase. We're doing a lot to try and increase physical activities with in preschoolers in oh, nice. school kids where they are actually their physical ed is not really physical education. It's really standing around most of the time. And there are very simple things you can do as an example in playing softball and you have somebody up and everybody's in the field. Well, and when anybody gets a hit or hits the ball, the whole team gets to run around the bases. <laughs> Very That's simple. Right. Yeah. Uh, trying to open up places or, uh, for recess. Mm -hmm. um, having joint, we, we're working to sponsor joint use agreements where schools open up their facilities because oftentimes they're in the, in the most poorest sections. There's the least parkland per capita. Um, so they open it up. So unfortunately, yeah. so fortunately, they can they can be used by the community at night and on weekends. Well, it's very simple. That area is already there. Well, yeah, the schools are concerned about liability. You can overcome all that problem. Mm. There's a lot of opportunities. We sponsor Parks After Dark, um, which has led to a reduction in crime in those areas. There are a lot of things we can do that have double benefits, and I think it's thinking a little differently. We had two campaigns. Um, and choose Health LA, one to reduce sugar-sweetened beverages. And I don't know if any of you saw that pouring in a, um, from a bottle and it's pouring into a glass and little by little you know, that, that liquid becomes solid packets of sugar and it says you wouldn't eat 22 packets of sugar, why are you drinking them? And also portion control. How many have seen our portion control stuff? Yeah, I mean basically saying you can go to the same places, you can eat healthier and you can save a lot of calories. You know, I think that there is, a, there is a kind of asymmetry between physical activity promotion and, and healthy eating promotion. In the sense that with physical activity, you know, there is, I think you're right, some low-hanging fruit out there. Uh, but there's no pushback. There's no organized lobby that's pushing in the other direction. And I think that, you know, one of the problems we have with diet is that, you know, it's just so profitable to push right, unhealthy right. food. And you don't right. think screens are the alternative? Screens? Screens. Everybody promoting a program on a screen is the alternative to physical activity. Uh, well, that's set, yeah. No, I, I think <laughs> that is know, a And we know the more time in front of screen, duh, the less time you're going to be in physical activity. So all the promotion of screens and using screens more and more for more and more things is, in fact, impeding the physical activity well, increase sure. that we it's need. It's getting in the well, way of it, but it's not. No, it's not. It's not, it's not, it's like, not like, saying don't exercise, right, it's but not it's saying it in very it. subtle ways. 
Well, actually, uh, there is, there is, there can be complementarity between screen time and physical That's activity. True. The games. The games. Yeah, the games, games that so you have get, that. You get well. There's the game. There's the Wii and stuff like that. Yeah. That's relatively recent. But even you know, uh, kids who uh, spend a lot of time watching TV, depending on the content, they might be watching baseball games or soccer mm -hmm. games or stuff like that. That then motivates them to go out and play the sports. So it's not as simple as a displacement with the screen time. There, it's a it's a fairly well, subtle but, issue. But there's pretty good evidence that increased screen time means less. It means more activity. sedentary behavior. More sedentary and behavior. That's, and, and that, that sedentariness, itself, sedentariness alone, is a risk. Is a risk. Yeah. Absolutely, sedentariness is a is a major health problem apart from yeah. physical activity. So all those of you who are sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they. I mean, in my kids' school, PE is twice a week. I mean, what's that? I mean, there's so many these such easy things to be done that haven't been done yet. Yeah. You know, I mean, you made it sound well, like it's more regular Well, part of it, part of it, as many here. schools, there's the requirements, state requirements that aren't being met. So one of the things parents can do is make sure that their schools are meeting the requirements for PE, which generally are more and better than what a lot of schools are doing. Because if you look who's teaching physical education, they're not necessarily people who have that background. So one of the things we've been doing is trying to train those that are actually uh, organizing that to do it much better. And it's interesting, they like that. They like being, being empowered to be able to do a better job at promoting physical activity among their kids because they didn't really know what they were doing. Let me ask you guys a question. Let's talk about propaganda, health <laughs> propaganda. So let's think of a classic government health propaganda campaign, uh, public service announcements, uh, putting out brochures, trying to promote programs in the school to get messages out. And we sh surely have come a long way since then, since the 1960s. I mean, we know a lot more about how people make decisions. We know a lot more about communications. We have more communications options these days. What would a really, really smart health propaganda campaign financed by the government look like? Well, I think one of the successful examples is the California anti-smoking ads, uh, in part because, uh, you know, it ties into people's sense of autonomy, uh, that, uh, you know, they want to make their own decisions. And when people realize that their own decisions are, in fact, being manipulated by people who are making money off of that manipulation, they tend to react, and they tend to, uh, you know, change their behavior in ways that are able to withstand the onslaught of marketing. So I think that that is a good place to start. You know, send a clear signal that, you know, you are being manipulated whenever yeah. you see a, a food ad. Or and and in fact, the most successful yes. campaign that's ever been is the American Legacy Truth Campaign that stopped hundreds of thousands of kids from starting to smoke. And it was edgy, and it basically portrayed the tobacco industry in not the most favorable light, shall right. we say. Um, and that had the, had the most impact of any campaign that I'm aware of, very, very carefully evaluated. So part of it is government, in general, doesn't want to, you know, go too far and say, oh, well, this is a bad industry or these folks are not good mm -hmm. folks or whatever. But unfortunately, in the case of tobacco and in some other areas, we have to, in fact, talk about the industry because the motives of the industry, yeah. they're trying to maximize shareholder value. That mm -hmm. They're not trying to maximize health. You're not trying to maximize community benefit, social benefit, and we have to call that out sometimes. On the other hand, we also need them, in many cases, to change what they're doing in the healthful direction. So we have, for example, are part of a national group trying to reduce salt. 
over a long period of time. And that's going to be very successful. It's, we're changing our pallets little by little and getting manufacturers to reduce the salt. Doesn't happen over a year, maybe happen over five years, ten years. But that's doable and that's a place where we can get industry to work with us. There are a lot of those opportunities and we can't always portray them as the enemy. But there are times when we have to call them out. I mean, the Truth Campaign was especially powerful because it wasn't telling you what to do. You know, it didn't say don't smoke. It didn't even say smoking is bad for you. It just said, look at these, I mean, it was pretty blunt. Look at these evil companies and what they're doing and how they're, you know, making money off of, you know, killing you, basically. When you put body bags in front <laughs> of the headquarters, <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's, you sugarcoat that, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, especially with, I mean, we were talking about this before, especially with things like obesity and smoking, everybody already knows these are bad for you. PSAs, you know, I think they've done what they can do for these things. I think that's more useful for new problems that come up, you know. Um, but let's remember media can be very effective. Oftentimes, media alone won't be effective. It's media plus other things. Right. And that's what we really learned. There's nothing wrong with media. We want to have media work effectively, but it only works in, with, in synergy with other things, with policies, with incentives. And if we can do those things all together, then it can make a difference. You know, one of the things that I get concerned about is that if you look at the trends in obesity over time, you know, since 1980 when it really started to take off, uh, there have been these disparities between the rich and the poor, you know, yeah. with ethnic minority groups, and those disparities have basically persisted. But they're small compared to the overall increase in obesity over time. In other words, everyone has had the same problem. Uh, and even though at any one point in time there are disparities uh, between the rich and the poor, those pale in comparison to what happens over time. But now I think there's been so much attention to obesity and there's been so much uh, coverage of it in the news and so forth that the wealthier, more well-educated segments of the population have really got that message. And they, are, they have the resources to change their behavior and they have the knowledge and they have the awareness to act on that. And I'm afraid we're going to now begin to see a real spreading apart, where obesity continues to be a major problem for lower income groups. It becomes less of a problem over time, over maybe a long period of time, for the higher income and more well-educated groups. And I think that when you, when you start thinking about an educational campaign, it's got to grapple with that issue somehow. Well, we, we divided Los Angeles County into 128 areas. Um, and then we looked at, at the... Um, evidence in terms of obesity compared to the economic hardship index, which is, you know, how much people make. And the, the, at, the, at one end, we had the tonier places that um, had an average of, this was among uh, school kids, mm -hmm. had about a 5 to 6 percent obesity rate. And right near them, you'd find these other ones, that, and, and they had an average family income of $100,000. Then you looked at those that had the higher economic hardship index. They were making as a family on average $37,000, and their rate of obesity was well over 30%. So these are huge yeah. disparities. These are not very small disparities. The other thing to keep in mind is cheaper does not mean fewer calories. Oftentimes, the cheapest thing you can buy are chips and soda. That can fill you up more. We have doubled the amount of demand for food banks and for food that is distributed free. And look at the percentage of people who are on, who are on federal nutritional assistance programs. 
Um, and if you look at that and you say you have limited number of dollars, where are you going to get the greatest calories for the dollar? So we have to understand that, that, that poverty, poverty can be a poison when we're talking about food. Yeah. You know, who's going to buy the fresh fruits and vegetables, which are a lot more expensive than the macaroni and cheese in a, in a, in a box? Yeah. And not just the money, it's the time. It's you the know, time you as well. You have two jobs. This takes exactly. Yeah. Dr. Mann, let me ask you a question. Uh, you have done a lot of research in psychology. It's what you do. Can you point to one of your studies that illuminates something that you think it would be really important to understand about the way we make decisions or the way we're influenced in a way that you think might have some relevance to what we're talking about here? Good grief. Um, I, I wouldn't want to point to one study, but I would make an overarching statement. What I study most of the time is self-control. And I feel like if I could make one overall statement about self-control that pertains to this, I would say that people just don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) They they really don't. (laughs) And seriously, though. And I feel like that actually leads to some very clear ideas of what we can do. I mean, we want to make sure that people are not being put in situations where they have to use self-control, but instead, you know, change the, the situation, change the environment So what's your next around them. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, done with that, so on to the next So, so this is a big deal, because, of course, for a long time, we've heard you've got to have more self-control. It's all about self-control, and you're yeah, saying it not. better not be, or, or it's just not going to happen. Is that essentially what, what you're saying? I, I mean, kind of, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to, be blamey about it, um, and people do differ in their self-control, but studies that measure people's self-control ability and then look to see if they can actually control themselves don't generally find uh, a very strong relationship between those things. So, you know, people who, you know, who, if you find people who are overeating, they're not, it's not necessarily because they have no self-control, it could very well be because they're just the ones who get caught in situations where that, you know, there's, there's nothing but temptation in front of them. So we have to arrange the environment in some way so that people don't have to rely on self-control to yeah. make the right decisions yeah. for health. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And now, and, and Dr. Zeman, I have to ask you a question now. Uh, we, we haven't said much about taxes or economic incentives or, or prompts and controls, rewards, punishments. Anything, any, can you shed any light, sort of, because there's a lot of debate on this. What does yeah. soda tax work and, and so forth? Well, I think you've got to think about uh, the incentives in two different ways. I mean, one is the, the actual economic impact on people. And it's pretty clear from the evidence on the relationship between food prices and consumption that uh, a small increase in the food price, a soda tax, for example, is not going to have a big impact on demand. It just isn't there. Uh, I mean, you would have to, like, double the price of a Coke before you get much of an effect. Um, so that probably isn't realistic. On the other hand, if you uh, transform that price increase into a separate amount, and you say, and you make it clear that this is a syntax, and you know, you're, th- this can of Coke costs you know, whatever it costs, uh, 50 cents, but you're going to pay an additional 10 cents as a syntax, that sends a me- very different kind of message. And that is a reminder to people that this is a behavior that 
imposes costs mm. on themselves sin and on others. Sin? No, it doesn't have to be called a sin tax. You're just <laughs> but it has that to be like a shorthand. It has to be clear. It has to be. It can't be rolled into the price as part of the okay. part of the deal. It has to be a separate thing. In part, that's because, you know, if you go to the store and you buy a pencil, and they tell you the pencil is going to cost a dollar, you might say, "Wow, that's a lot for a pencil." But if they say it's going to cost fifty cents, and then you walk out, and then the guy says on your way out, "Oh, excuse me, you got to pay me another fifty cents for that pencil," you're outraged. You're, you know, you don't want to. You don't want to. No one wants to pay for something twice. So if you account for that that tax separately. <laughs> And you make it really clear what the tax is. That has a much bigger effect mm. on people's behavior than just rolling it into the price. But there are things you can do. You can cross subsidize. I mean, at uh, UCLA Hospital, for example, I know they keep raising the price of the other foods and reducing the price of the salads. Well, I, a lot of employers, in fact, employ some cross subsidization. But it's also the physical environment. What do you have? What, you know, what's at eye level? What's mm -hmm. first in the line? Your is your dessert yeah. first, for example? Yeah. Does it have calories labeled? So you, again, it's a combination of, yeah. of efforts to, to do this. But it is providing a bunch of choices. It's providing choice and helping making the, the, the um, good choice, the better choice, the easier choice. Yeah. And there are a lot of different ways to do that with social media, with physical placement, a lot of different ways to do that with yeah. subsidization. All those make people make people on, on, at the margin, make better decisions that are in their own health interest. And you're basically describing nudges. Right, and nudges. The, yeah, good book. I'm a huge fan of nudges. <laughs> uh, you get huge effects from little tiny efforts that you know, the, um, you know, that you can do in schools. Just putting the vegetables at the beginning of the yeah. uh, cafeteria exactly. line, um, putting a bigger spoon on the vegetable serving thing, um, little stupid things that schools can afford to do. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't cost anything. Um, have pretty big effects. We got big effects on kids eating vegetables just by putting pictures of vegetables on the trays in their cafeteria. And we also got huge increases in vegetable eating if we gave them the vegetable before they went through the cafeteria line. We had them sit at their table and said, here, everyone, give, give everyone you know, a little cup of carrots. And then you know, you're putting someone in a position where you know, normally in a cafeteria, you're competing. You got the yummy food, and you got you, know, you got your unhealthy. You got your healthy there together, and it's hard for the healthy to win in that kind of battle. But if you put the healthy in a battle against nothing, then it has a prayer. It has a prayer. So we have some good evidence of this. So, so they got so to eat the carrots while they were waiting in line for the other stuff. They they sat at their table and ate the carrots, and then they went through the line. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, because you know, Thank of course, you. they're starving. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> They just want to get to the playground anyway, so. Yeah. That's yeah, great. Yeah. No, thank you. This discussion's you. making me hungry. I know. <laughs> I have your dinner right here. Would you like it now? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, so again, good agreement on uh, among you three. It's almost sorry. disappointing how much I'm you sorry. agree on this. We're clear. Too much. But, but uh, I mean, obviously, things you disagree about. But agreement that many, many things have to be done. The, the nudging idea, uh, no silver bullet, and yet. We pick up the latest issue of whether it's the New York Times magazine or I'll pick on my own magazine, The Atlantic, and you'll see sometimes on the cover story the latest silver bullet solution. It's bacteria in the gut. That's the cause of obesity. It's all carbs. Don't worry about any of this behavioral <laughs> stuff. Cut carbs and everything goes away. 
Some people say the same about fat. We keep hearing this. Of course, we all know we love this stuff. We all want to believe. And of course, we hear that you can't lose weight. You can't. It's impossible. Biology will never let us take care of this problem ever. Okay. Is this, how do we, is this not a problem, first of all, that we keep hearing these pronouncements that try to simplify the picture? Or can we just ignore it? Is that creating distracting noise? I mean, I'm appalled by it. What do you guys think? Well, it's a really good thing that um, people don't, in fact, stay with diets, don't keep the weight off, because otherwise, just think how terrible it would be for Weight Watchers and these other organizations. They They would never make a profit. Uh, but you know, no, more, more seriously, I think everybody would like to find easier ways. We've been told there are easy ways to do things. We've been told there are shortcuts. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, they're not shortcuts. They're long cuts. And we have to think a little differently about it. But it's natural because people, because self-control doesn't work. People are, and the environment isn't changing. Your self-control may go up or down. Uh, on average, it's not going to be very good but you're being bombarded. Right. You're being bombarded. How many commercials does the average person see in a day about food? How many vending machines do you pass by? How many corner stores? Every, every service station sells every kind of yeah. you know, snack food. So given all this, it's really hard to fight against those forces. So people are therefore looking at other solutions. Those solutions, unfortunately, are illusory. Um, yes, we know that some diets are better. Vegetarian diet overall is, is better for you. There seems to be agreement on that. A Mediterranean diet is probably better for you than some of the diets you were experiencing in your, uh, in your perambulations uh, around uh, East Los Angeles today. I hope today. so. Right? Everybody's talking about so. the caveman diet now. Oh, yeah, the, pa- the paleo diet. Because the cavemen were diet. very, very yeah. healthy. Sure. <laughs> yes. Their life expectancy yes. was 30-something. Yeah. Yeah. So we should... Yeah. Yeah. We should get on that. Well, I think it's one of those things where, you know, that what we have to do is difficult. Because, again, I mean, the economic incentives of selling, you know, bad obesogenic food are so great that the only way around this problem, I think, ultimately, is to take away some of those incentives and disincentivize that behavior at the firm level. Now, that's going to be a very difficult lift politically. And so I think there's tremendous temptation to try everything else. When we've tried all of the caveman diets and the French diet and the you know, no-fat diet, then I think once we've given up on all these other explanations, I think we'll come back to, to what has to be done, which is difficult politically. But you know, I think we'll get there eventually. So uh, it almost sounds like you're suggesting we may not quite be ready yet, really, for the right solutions. Uh, I know you're not saying we shouldn't be trying, but, but it may be a while before they really take I think, no, I think there are solutions out there, and I think that um, they're actually useful, and in some places they're being implemented. But let me give you a concrete example. I, um, uh, I'm a parent of uh, two kids in the Santa Monica schools. There was a big debate over whether uh, sugar-sweetened milk should be sold by the schools or not, flavored milk, chocolate and strawberry. Oh, boy. Uh, so this was a, yeah, it was a tremendous <laughs> knockdown, drag-out fight. Yeah. And the proponents of um, selling the chocolate milk, mm-hmm. um, you know, the big question is, should the, should the school system be selling this milk or not? Mm-hmm. Now, the proponents argued that, well, um, you know, kids need calcium. There's, there is, and there is a right. big problem with calcium deficiency. There's no question about right. that. And there is calcium in milk. And so the argument was, kids aren't going to drink milk 
uh, unless there's sugar in it. Um, now, my view is that there are other ways to, uh, to get kids to drink milk, yeah. and there are other ways to encourage parents to have their kids drink milk. And one of those ways is education. Yeah. Uh, but that is a technique that did not uh, occur to did the school board school. of Santa Monica. <laughs> and so they decided that they had to retain the sugared milk in the school in the name of calcium. And, you know, the amount of, tea, the, the amount of uh, sugar in flavored milk is very small. It's just a teaspoon or something. But, you know, I don't think you can instill a lifetime of healthy habits by throwing sugar at kids, even just one teaspoon at a time. Uh, it's got to be education. So there's a concrete example of something relatively easy to do. Send out a flyer to the parents. Tell them, you know, there are lots of kids around here who aren't getting enough calcium. You need calcium. Have them drink their milk, you know. Uh, there could be it's units in the school itself that talk about the importance of calcium. That's education. It's very different than bribing by sugar. That's the kind of cultural shift and intellectual shift that we got to have happen. And it isn't happening yet. So not that it couldn't, because in L.A. they did stop selling the uh, sugared milks. Uh, but not everywhere. Didn't they, Jamie Oliver do his thing here and it was too much too fast and it didn't work I, I'm you know I, I, I don't want to characterize it but it was an effort to put healthy food in schools but all of a sudden I mean it was not sort of your gradual well, it's not just Jamie Oliver there have been a number of efforts to try and change and if you change too radically mm -hmm. quickly it doesn't mm -hmm. work you have to change slowly and it's that's extremely important. But I just want to add something to Fred's very good point, and that is when, there's an ed when the gap is an informational gap, mm -hmm. education can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Many of our gaps are not educational gaps. Yeah. We know what to do, we just yeah. don't do it. Yeah. That's when education alone won't work. Well, uh, let me, I think uh, we're, we're going to break for questions in a second. Any last things any of you want to say before we take some questions from the audience? In fact, I'm just going to ask you, make one last quick point. And this time, uh, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Mann. What? One random quick point on any <laughs> yes, topic? For a yes, professor. there. <laughs> um, okay, I'll add one thing that didn't come up. Please. Since we're talking about all these different kinds of things that work or don't work. I want to add one more thing that doesn't work just because uh, it's been raised uh, recently in the media. Uh, this guy at the Hastings Center wants to, uh, thinks that the only solution left on obesity is to increase the stigma of obesity. And uh, he seems to be pushing, and he's a respected guy, so people are listening to him, and it, he's sort of pushing the idea that you can shame people into uh, losing weight somehow. I just want to get it out there that that does not work. That <laughs> does not work. And if it worked, it, there wouldn't be fat people. Okay. It clearly that, doesn't work. So if that's that, my last That's thing. a good last point. Out of nowhere. And one last point from you. Complete freedom. And we haven't talked about as much about the retail environment. You know, the big sellers, whether it's Walmart or Kroger's or all these, you know, they have a lot to do with what people buy. Um, working with their suppliers, the distributors and the manufacturers. So they have an opportunity to be much more proactive and helpful. Um, and there have been some efforts to label foods with, you know, yellow, uh, if it's kind of a, well, I'm not so sure, green if it's good, or black, um, red if it's not. 
um, that was tried in the Northeast that seemed to have some short-term effects, wasn't fully evaluated. I mean, so we should, mm -hmm. there's point of purchase information that could be given that could help prompts in that way that might be helpful. And we haven't fully explored that opportunity, but we need to get them on our side, on the side of the consumer's health. That's a great point. And last point. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the time. Dr. Mann mentioned time is a constraint. And uh, returning to uh, home-cooked meals is a real challenging a task that I think, you know, uh, is uh, really an objective for all of society. It's not something that people can do on their own necessarily. It's a goal to strive for, but it has to be a collective goal. Can't wait to see what food we're going to have at the reception. <laughs> <laughs> Someone better feed this guy or we're going to have a problem. Hi, my name is Garrett Shackstad. Um, I had uh, I'd heard about Mayor Bloomberg's uh, the soda size ban in New York. And when I'd first heard about it, I thought it was really dumb. I thought there was a lot of stuff, well, blah, blah, blah. If someone wants to drink a ton of soda, they're just going to buy 10 sodas and they'll drink a ton of it. Mm -hmm. Then I read an article in The New Yorker that was detailing the whole plan, and I was completely blown away and immediately changed my mind on it. Um, they were talking about a lot of psychological elements that went into it and um, a lot of different things, even the size of the scoop they're saying in terms of how much someone consumed on it. I was absolutely blown away by the article. Um, I was just curious if any of you had read it or what your thoughts were on Mayor Bloomberg's soda size plan. I love it. I think it's a great, I haven't seen the article, but I think it's a great idea. It's a drop in the bucket, fine, but it's a bucket we're trying to fill, so. It's but a very it's, small, but useful and yeah. important. It's a nudge incentive it's a nudge so yeah. you could doesn't say you can't drink as right. much soda as yeah. you want it's saying that you know you're going to have to fill that up three or four times if you want to get a liter or whatever yeah. um, and uh, and and some people That's would awesome. obviously do that and when i see these commercials for i think it's coke i don't want to be unfair that says you can get any drink at mcdonald's for the same price you know what what is that what you know yeah. what is that telling people in terms of a nudge but i think yeah. Yeah, changing really. the physical environment a little bit can be one of those nudges and i'm very anxious to see the results of yeah. that because it's not really stopping people's choice it's just making the choice a little different yeah. it's brilliant even a little tiny obstacle uh some people won't get past it i mean so there's data from the netherlands that if you have a candy dish right here on the table you'll eat more than if you have to extend your arm. <laughs> Seriously, not even walk across the room. I mean, that too, but... So the smallest well, obstacle. Another example people. would be plate size. You know, plate size, since right, many right. of us were kids, have increased significantly. Mm -hmm. You don't realize mm -hmm. that the dinner plates you're now seeing are 30 or 40 or 50 percent bigger um, in terms of their total surface area than they were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So even changing that yeah. makes a difference. Not having food, not serving family style, where you have food in front of you, where you're more likely to have seconds. All these cues, we can change a whole bunch of cues, and we know that each of those works a little bit. Well, if you put those all together, and I shouldn't even mention the issue of buffets. <laughs> I mean, all you can eat is hardly a prescription for health. Um, so if you have a lot of these little nudges, you can over time perhaps make a bigger difference. We don't know all of these, but we certainly have yeah. some clues. And yeah. they're painless, and they don't, you know, they don't get in the way of your freedom. They don't restrict it. You can do these things, but just a teeny bit harder. And in terms of taxes specifically, as you pointed out, Dr. Zimmerman, sometimes it may be the way the tax is packaged and labeled, essentially. Mm -hmm. The marketing of the tax may be as important or more important 
than the amount of the tax. That's right. That's amazing. Hi, uh, Shana Lavaretta, a colleague at UCLA. So two of the panelists know me, and nice to meet you, Dr. Mann. Um, I do health insurance research at UCLA, and so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the Affordable Care Act and all the prevention and wellness provisions, the workplace wellness. Dr. Zimmerman, you mentioned instant recess briefly, which I know is something big on our campus and, and what we do, and I was wondering if you could talk about maybe some of those workplace things that are coming in to try and make people eat healthier and, and also, honestly, exercise more during all that time when we're at work? Well, okay, I guess this is as good a time as any to put in a plug for instant recess, which is a short activity break during the day, developed by one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Tony Yancey. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very simple thing. During the course of the day, um, a group of people gets together and they do a short activity break, usually just 10 minutes long. Very simple things, just standing, uh, moving gently, uh, often there's a musical soundtrack that goes along with it that sort of you know, keeps everyone motivated. Uh, and it's been shown to have very positive effects on uh, not only health and you know, movement and physical activity during the day, but also on worker productivity. So a lot of companies are adopting this as a way of uh, you know, doing something good for their employees, but also helping the bottom line at the same time. Yeah, worksite wellness has been around for 40 or 50 years. The good thing is that the incentives are aligned. You know, we've mm -hmm. talked a little bit mm -hmm. about incentives, not enough perhaps, but that's because we have an economist. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but we, we, you know, incentives are aligned. They want to keep the workers healthy. And by the way, dependents as well, oftentimes, because they're paying mm -hmm. for their health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there is a clear relationship between the effectiveness in terms of health um, uh, risk factors and productivity where it's been measured. So there are a lot of studies now that show higher worker satisfaction, morale, set, and, and productivity in general when they, have, when they participate in workplace wellness programs. So giving time off, having financial incentives as the Affordable Care Act provides is another way. Again, is it the answer entirely? No. And it's obviously easier in some kind of companies than others. Most mm -hmm. people are in small companies. Mm -hmm. That's much more difficult. Most of the examples we have are in larger companies. But there are opportunities. What about gym memberships? That's, again, another thing where, unfortunately, uh, uh, if people really participated as they expect to when they sign up, mm -hmm. all these gyms would go bankrupt, right. but, or they'd be overcrowded. They'd be but but yeah. e e having, you know, the, I know a company that has gym membership, but you have to use it a certain number of times a month if you want to, be, if you want to get the subsidy. Mm -hmm. So there are a bunch of different things. Yeah. We need to keep trying these and be creative and realize it's going to take a whole bunch of them. Next question on your left. Uh, Giselle Ryan. Um, so a lot of times when we think about health, we think about the here and the now. And um, a lot of times with obesity and smoking, there are long-term effects. How do you get people to think about the long-term effects rather than the here and the now? Um, and how do you wrap self-efficacy into that? That's the exact problem, is that people are thinking about the here and the now. I mean, if people were thinking about the future, they, they wouldn't smoke. If they were, I mean, there's, that's a pretty solid, scary uh, future there. You know, to, I mean, getting people to focus on uh, the health risks is, yeah, I mean, it's a prob that's the problem. I feel well, like in general, younger people don't think about it. They think mm -hmm. they're immortal, they think they're yeah. vulnerable. Um, yeah. But when you come, it's, it's different. For example, with tobacco, you're addicted. 
You don't realize how we know kids don't know how easy it is to get addicted to tobacco. They think it's going to be a cool behavior, and then all, the next thing they know, they're reaching for a cigarette before they know it because they're addicted to the nicotine. With food, it's not quite uh, the same issue, but trying to get a long-term orientation is very difficult. A lot of the ways that we've been successful in, in other things, with tobacco, for example, is talking about you know how you smell when you kiss somebody. Uh, <laughs> You know, like kissing an, kiss, kissing an ashtray. I mean, you know, things like that that affected when people are very concerned about those kind of issues, about the femininity or masculinity or how they come across. And they talk scary. about, you know, what is cool and what is not cool. Some, you have to start with where people are. You can't, you can't start with where we would like them to be. And that's why we need the very sensitive marketing and how we frame the issues so that it really hits home is absolutely critical. Yeah, you know, I think um, it's a great question, uh, but I'm not sure if it's uh, framed in the right way that's going to get us to a great answer. Uh, because, you know, I'm a recovering economist. <laughs> <laughs> and economists have this idea that people are carefully weighing the pros and cons of everything they do and thinking about the future but discounting it, and what a bunch of BS. Right. That's not how people right. make decisions. Right. Uh, you know, even really big decisions, like decisions about retirement, decisions about investments, yeah. even those decisions aren't made that way. People look at what their peers are doing, they look at what their family is doing, they look at what they've done in the past, uh, they are uh, tremendously influenceable by the social cues that are in their environment, uh, and somehow it all goes into this huge pot and it gets stirred around and then something comes out. Uh, but it's not nearly as rational as all that. Uh, and so I think that... Um, that you're right. You know, we have to focus on the here and the now and um, providing a kind of scaffolding or structure that's going to enable people to make decisions that, you know, are, are really right for them. Hi, my name is Mimi Choi. I'm a pediatrician in South Central Los Angeles and actually a maternal child health fellow at UCLA's Center for Children, Families, and Communities. So my question's for Dr. Fielding. I'm really curious to learn more about what the city of LA has planned for its next steps as in terms of policies and initiatives to address obesity, maybe in these more innovative ways that you've been discussing tonight, and then also just what specific challenges and strengths we face as a city in terms of addressing this. You know, I, I really appreciate easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're focusing right now on portion size, and what we're trying to do is to work with restaurants and try and get them interested in offering smaller portions. And it's, uh, there's a lot of challenging issues in that, but there will be some early adopters, and that's the next. I mean, we're trying to do things in phase, one at a time, to try and understand what can work. We're working very hard as a pediatrician and maternal and child health fellow, you will understand, to promote baby-friendly hospitals. Now, people may say, what are you talking about? Well, what we're talking about is trying to promote exclusive breastfeeding. And we know that has many health benefits, including a reduction in the risk for diabetes and obesity as a child if a, mo if a mother breastfeeds for a period of time, as well as reducing the rate of sudden infant death syndrome and all otitis media and respiratory infection. All. So we're focusing a lot on trying to get all the delivery hospitals, um, in fact, to, to do that. And then we are working with First Five um, to work with preschools, particularly, to try and improve the nutrition um, in preschools and the physical activity in preschools. We want to get those habits established extremely early. Challenges, we don't have time to go into all the challenges. You've heard a lot of them about now and I hope you're not discouraged because I'm not. 
if we have the will, we're going to solve this problem. I just am impatient. Hi, um, my name is Megan Birdsell. I uh, volunteer teaching in South LA to um, garden, teaching kids about gardening and sometimes nutrition. Uh, and my kids, they fight over eating the kale raw in, out of the garden and they fight over eating like the cabbage raw out of the garden. So I haven't found a lot of problems with the kids. They love the healthy food. Like I don't have enough to give them. I think part of it's that they grow it themselves. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know what to do about, like it makes me sad that they're in fourth grade or fifth grade and they love it. But there, it's not, there's no changes at home. Like you're talking about what they can do at lunchtime or at preschool, like feeding the kids there. But um, I'm just not confident that that they'll see what you know the same kind of food after they leave the elementary school and and what they're getting at home. So I was wondering if you had any ideas or if anyone else here has any ideas. Don't let them graduate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Question. I, I visited a. Um, <laughs> a school in Colorado, uh, in the inner city there, where they also had a gardening program. I was a little skeptical about the whole, it if works. they garden, then they'll... It was unbelievable. I've never yeah. seen such enthusiasm among young children. Yeah. And in fact, they ended up making an enormous difference in the whole community because they got their parents involved in coming to the school and eating meals cooked with the food they had pulled from the garden and grown themselves. And then the cafeteria people got in with it, and pretty soon they became one of the big suppliers of their own school cafeteria. Wow. And other schools saw what was going on. And lo and behold, it was actually a big change in the community. So I'm a, I'm nice. a huge believer in that. Where but was that? This was in Colorado. Yeah, yeah the community in gardens Denver. work. They're yeah. great examples, and there are a lot of places where they could be where they're not now. And you don't need a yeah. lot of space yeah. for where you live. We have, in my house, we have three planters, raised planters, small raised planters behind, and my wife is raising all kinds of stuff. And I like the kale raw, too. Uh, <laughs> it, it, we, can, we, can, we can do this at a, at a very local level. We have a lot of parks. Parks aren't always fully utilized. There's part of the parks could be uh, consecrated, could be uh, used for, for community gardens and individual gardens. There's a lot of those opportunities. The other thing we have to think about is kids involved in food preparation, mm -hmm. not just the gardening part, but we found mm -hmm. in a number of instances where kids are involved in the preparation of the food, they get very excited, they get very interested, and they'll eat things you wouldn't have thought they would have eaten before. And they probably wouldn't if you put them in front of them and they hadn't helped prepare them. Yeah. The physical environment changes if you've got um, a food garden, and is there going to be support besides just one person thinking I should do it and then having a grassroots? Is there going to be some leadership from the top for public food gardens and schools and parks? It takes a lot of different things. It takes local level push. If you have people who are associated with the schools, talking to the school board about it. You need people who are um, uh, in, in communities in charge of parks and rec, talking to them about it. If there's land that's otherwise not being used, talking to whoever the developer might be, having some space left over. Um, talking to people who have, you know, just tiny backyards, um, but say, you know, instead of putting your daisies there, your roses there, how about having a small vegetable? So it, it takes a village, mm -hmm. and it takes a county, and it takes cities, and it takes people who believe that that's important. The first piece of information is you have to believe it's important and it can make a difference. I believe that. And that's one of the educational gaps we have, that not enough people believe that yet. We need to make sure we're providing that information. I assume all of you are great ambassadors for improved food environment. So this is the start.
Next question on your left. Hi, Jacob Appel. Um, I have a question about the community aspects of health. So we've heard a little bit about um, individual level nudges to push personal behavior and then heard some about cultural communities and the impact through diet and the like. Um, do you have any examples of, uh, in particular, positive examples where a community, either cultural or geographic, has come together to um, recognize health as a kind of a community as, a, as opposed to or in addition to uh, an individual issue and then made some big progress on that front? I think there are a lot of examples, but um, I think one of the things that's important that we've been working on with a bunch of cities is to include health as an element of their general plan. You know, every community has to develop a plan. Um, you may not even know about it, but they do. Well, make sure that health has to be a consideration. If you have health being a consideration in that, you're more likely to have walkable, bikeable communities with community gardens, with mass transit access, all the kinds of things you would expect. Um, so start by the, start there. Um, but there are a lot of communities in, in Los Angeles County, and we could go into them, uh, that have done a fair, fairly good job. And, but it also takes local leadership. It takes people who say, this is important. And oftentimes that has to either influence or be by political leaders. Dr. Mann, can I uh, drag you into this for a second? Sure. Thank you. Uh, and I don't mean to be picking Tricking on you. Picking and screaming? Uh, you, so so yeah. you spent a lot of time here in this area. Now you're in uh, Minnesota. You grew up in Chicago. A anything you want to point out, perhaps differences <laughs> at the community level uh, that you've okay. noticed that, that's relevant to this? I mean, it's, it's hard, I think, here with, you know, with such a big city to, to make big changes. I mean, I felt like that question was about a grassroots level thing. There are 88 cities in Los thing. Angeles County. In, yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, in, you know, in Minnesota, I mean, I'm, I'm doing work with the school district there, and it's just much easier to make changes in these sort of smaller towns where you don't have to deal with the, I can't even imagine dealing with LA Unified to, to do anything. Um, yeah, but there are over so 80 school districts here, and there are 88 cities, so not everything is the size of, of L.A. City, you know, LA almost City. 4 million people. So, so surely so the size like of the community are, is one important yeah. factor. But what about culturally? I mean, uh, some communities in some parts of the country. So, for example, I think of Michelle Obama coming in with some of her, I think, very simple messages, get mm -hmm. a little exercise, eat better food, grow some gardens. And some communities have been almost violent in their pushback to Michelle Obama. Uh, so, I mean, what's not to like about her message? But, right. so what it says to me is some communities may be ready, some aren't. Uh, any observations about that? I'm, am I, are you, I'm trying to figure out if you're suggesting that Minnesota would be opposed to healthy initiatives, because we're actually one of the healthiest states in the country. I don't know, the generalization is that we're all fat, but we're actually, like on every measure of health, we come out like near the top. So, I mean, the, the towns that we've been working with have been all very, um, you know, very much in favor of doing anything that we could think of to improve the health of the kids in the schools. I've been oh. mostly working with schools. So, I don't know, I mean... We, we like know that the local environment is important. Uh, the um, California Endowment has this... Um, uh, has, has, has put up posters a bunch of places, including the American Public Health Association, there's a museum in Sacramento, and it basically says, you know, in terms of health, uh, your zip code may be more important than your genetic code. 
So there are a lot of things about community, cultural ties, beliefs, uh, the strength of social networks um, is extremely important, uh, the degree to which you have uh, flux in terms of migration, out-migration, in-migration, uh, the safety of those communities, um, the, whether they're food deserts or whether you have places you can... So there are a lot of aspects of where we live, work, and play, and pray that make a difference. And we have to think of those community factors. We can't just think about this is one homogenized county. That would be wrong, and we wouldn't be successful. So ideally, we can tailor some interventions we have and policies to, to communities. Not yeah. ideally. We have to, sure. or we won't be successful. Right. And there may even be some way to do it for Minnesota, even, possibly. Well, <laughs> I don't want to go that Beyond far. Beyond Speculating. Yeah. yeah. Just to play devil's advocate for a moment, so I was doing a uh, community outreach thing in a low-income area of San Francisco, trying to educate low-income moms on this is what you should be eating, and this is what you, you should be feeding your kids. And uh, one person raised her hand and she said, well, okay, so I work two jobs. Um, my only pleasure in life is coming home and eating that Snickers bar. Are you really going to take even that away from me? I know it's unhealthy, but it's really all I have. And so, you know, who are we to really say that that is, you know, a worse outcome than actually the comforting effects um, of food? You're not asking. You don't have the psychologist answer that. <laughs> so the last one should stop the panel completely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I feel like you want to hear from these guys, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that question. First of all, I'm glad that we have a devil's advocate in the room, because otherwise we're all going to float into outer space. Um, but, you know, I, um, I, think that's a, I think that's a great point. And I think that um, it's important to keep, uh, to keep the constraints that people face in mind when we talk about these issues. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I, but I guess... You know, again, I mentioned about um, this economic model that I, I find um, not as useful as I used to find, which assumes that everyone's preferences are just fixed. That this woman was born with a desire to eat Snickers. And I guess I would ask, you know, where, where did that come from? Why is that, you know, her source of, of uh, satisfaction or, or joy? And no, I wouldn't want to take that away from her at this point in her life. But I do think that over the longer term, we need to level the playing field. So that, you know, it isn't some profit-making company that decides where her joy is. She's got to decide that for herself. Uh, and that's a long-term process, and it may happen with the next generation. But I think, that for me, that's the way to think about an issue like that. Yeah, somebody who loves chocolate. Um, <laughs> my question was, only one? Yeah. <laughs> But, but food has different meanings to different people and at different times and in different circumstances. So we have to work on trying to change those little by little um, so that maybe it's not quite the same pull as it would have been. Maybe it's a, uh, something in exchange for that uh, that would be a greater comfort. I don't think there's an easy answer. But that's why you have all of these psychologists, including you. I think you said that because you want to have a... Uh, you know, a, a good career in psychology, and you will. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. We'll see you upstairs. <laughs>